ourselves and I'm sure that we probably all could. So the slide um, that uh, you saw just before this one, the purple one, talked about a 40-day journey with Jesus and it also had this word on it. Um, and I'm just going to name that. It's a, it's a weird word. Um, it had this word on it, Lent. Um, so it speaks to something that we, you know, I'm, I'm sort of inviting you into. Uh, we at the church are inviting you into for a season. Um, and it's basically a 40-day journey with Jesus. So during the week, I sent out um, a reading plan that you can do if you would like to. Um, if you didn't get it, let me know. But uh, it breaks down the Gospel of Luke over um, 40 days. So if you were to read along with that reading plan over the next, it's 40-something days, but I'll get to that in a minute, over the next, let's call it 40 days for now, you'll read the whole Gospel of Luke plus a little bit of Acts because you might know that they're companion pieces. Luke wrote Acts and his Gospel together to go together. Um, and that's as a part of a process to sort of prepare our hearts, as it were, for Easter, um, which is coming up in a little over 40 days. And I, I, I feel slightly weird about the word Lent, um, and I know there are others who do, um, but it's one of those things where it's not so much about what we call it, it's about the idea behind it. And I want to just explain the idea behind taking 40-ish days, and I'll explain that in a minute, behind taking 40 days to sort of prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter. So what you can see on the screens there is basically a calendar. Uh, it's meant to represent a calendar. You can see um, that on that inner circle there, there's the months of the year. And what's going on with this calendar is it's um, a depiction of how Christians um, for a long time nearly all Christians understood the passage of time uh, with the church as the centre of the community. It's a little bit like, you know, uh, when we celebrate Christmas, who knows that uh, there's a lot of preparation that goes into doing Christmas well. Um, for the most part, we probably experience that in our culture, in our sort of individual families. But you know, if you're responsible for, for getting gifts for everyone, to do that well, you have to start weeks before. You have, to, you have to start to think about food for Christmas lunch weeks before, don't you? There's a whole heap of things that go into doing Christmas well. Your, the schools that you're a part of in your community, they'll have a carols thing. They might have, you know, some sort of Christmas parties in each little class that the kids are involved in. Here at the church, we begin to think about, you know, what we're going to do in terms of worship and maybe some caroling and that kind of stuff. There's a whole heap of things that go into making Christmas the special season that we know it to be right? Kids just love Christmas, don't they? Because it's magic, because they go from one party to the next. Uh, they get to be with all the people they love. They get presents. And all of that takes some planning. Now, um, if you think about a 40-day season that leads up to Easter in a similar sense, except if you think about Christian communities through the ages, which have really been the place where everything happens. Um, if you think about, say, Europe, 
uh, for thousands of years, uh, the church was the centre of every village, every town, every neighbourhood. It was really where community happened. And Christian communities would plan together in the same way that we might plan to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate Easter. Now, there's a whole heap of reasons why sort of thinking about Easter this way has gone a little bit out of fashion. One is that um, Easter is, <laughs> is about suffering and death, at least in part, in part, isn't it? And the 40 days that the church used to kind of prepare their hearts and their lives and their minds for Good Friday, for instance, involved a contemplation of suffering. One of the things that went on in this 40 days was Resurrection Sunday is a great day to baptise people because it's a symbol of resurrected life. It's a symbol of the victory of God in the world. And I think there's something beautifully symbolic about sort of stepping into that new life on Resurrection Sunday. But church communities used to sort of say, you know, in order to, to grasp that prize, in order to be prepared to enter into the resurrected life that Christ offers us, there's also the matter of Christian life being a lot about suffering. <laughs> Who knows that we can't have Resurrection Sunday unless we have Good Friday. Isn't that the truth? You don't resurrect from life. <laughs> you resurrect from death. Christ really died and we really celebrate the fact that he conquered death. And so what we're inviting you into and what the church sort of calendar has invited people into is is preparing for Easter and the mystery of that, of Christ coming as a human being and sharing in our sufferings, of Christ really dying on Good Friday and then Christ really coming into resurrection life by conquering sin and death. I think that's a good thing to do and you can call it what you want, basically. There's, diff there's different names for it. If you'd prefer to call it the quadricegip, Quadragesima, which is another name for these 40 days, go nuts. Even I can't say that as I've just evidenced. Uh, the, our brothers and sisters in Russia and Ukraine at the moment, they talk about this season, I love this, they call it the season of bright sadness. Because it's a season of engaging <laughs> with the fact that God came into a suffering world and he took its suffering upon himself. And he knew <laughs> what he had to do in order to save us. And that was to die. So, so have a look at the readings that we've sent out. They're very doable, I reckon, in between five and ten minutes. If you're not already reading something, it's a great opportunity to read the whole Gospel of Luke, which is a good thing to do, and to journey with Jesus in a, in a sort of a season of preparation to enter into the mystery of Easter. Does that sort of make sense? Um, now, those of you who are mathematicians, like our senior pastor Graham, will have realised that when we sent that email out on Wednesday, saying this is the first day of a 40-day season before Easter, you'll have realised that it's slightly more than 40 days. <laughs> um, and just to give a brief explanation for why we're talking about 40 days, which is a mirror of Jesus' time of testing in the wilderness, 
uh, and why it's actually 46 days is because in the Western Church, so the not Orthodox Church, uh, they decided, and this is Lutherans, Anglicans, some Baptists, Anabaptists, lots of different types of Christians, and increasingly Pentecostals are rediscovering uh, this heritage. They've decided that Sunday is always worth celebrating as a resurrection Sunday. And so the Sundays don't count. And so when you look at that reading plan, you'll see it's the Gospel of Luke, Monday to Saturday, but then on Sundays, we're going to worship, <laughs> as the worship, worshiping community always does, on the day that Christ was raised from the dead. And we're going to celebrate the fact that we are a resurrection community. And we're going to go um, to a psalm. And that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to take us to the psalm for the day from the reading plan that was sent out to you during the week. And it is Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Sorry, that back um, projector is not actually on. Oh, it may be on somewhere, <laughs> but it's not on there. Uh, okay. Uh, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling place, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life, I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. Now, you might already have seen a connection between this psalm and the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness, the 40 days of testing upon which this idea of Lent sort of um, reflects. Um, and if you do, don't shout it out right now. You can just uh, feel smug. Uh, and when I reveal what the connection is a little bit later in the sermon, you can look uh, at the person next to you and say, I picked that up because uh, I read the Bible like a Jew does. Um, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But uh, let's talk a bit about Psalm 91. Tom Wright calls this psalm a song with its feet 
on the ground. A song with its feet on the ground, even while its heart is praising the living and rescuing God. And what he means when he says that this is a song with its feet on the ground, even while it is praising a living and rescuing God, is there is a lot that we might expect from a song of comfort that this song does not say to comfort us. Now, this is a song that the uh, Hebrew community, that Israel would sing as a comfort. It's a, it's a comfort to many Christians and has been for generations. But there is a lot that it does not say, which we might like a song of comfort to say. It does not say, you might notice, that you will not be, as one of God's people, in dangerous places. It talks about the fowler's snare. <laughs> talks about being trapped in a place where your life is at risk. It does not say that as one of God's people you will not experience. It uses the word pestilence, but it's basically talking about plagues there, about pandemics, if you want to kind of contemporise it. It does not say that those things will not be a part of your life as one of God's people. It does not say that you will not as one of God's people, and I just can't help but think (laughs) about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine this morning, but it does not say that we might not even find ourselves in a situation such as our brothers and sisters in Ukraine find themselves right now. It just does not say that. It says the arrows will go past you. It says you will see thousands fall at your side. This psalm of comfort is notable (laughs) in the fact that it does not comfort us in the way that it would say, you will not go through these things, you will not avoid trouble, you will not avoid terrifying disease, you will not avoid war. It doesn't say that we will not experience trouble in this life. It does say that God will rescue us. It does say that God will rescue us. And I love language that is actually repeated in this psalm to speak about what it means to experience this rescue. You'll see in verse 1, it says that whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It talks about dwelling in God himself and you can see it again in verse 9 to 10. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high, so that's God, your dwelling, then no harm will overtake you and no disaster will come near your tent. (coughs) And um, this psalm actually sits as a bit of a companion piece to the one before it, Psalm 90. And Psalm 90 um, is attributed to Moses and it begins with these words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. You can imagine when Moses might speak these words or sing these words, where Moses might have these words in his mouth. Here is a man who spends the best 
part of his life, the most sort of significant part of what he did for God, of walking with God for him, was 40 years lost in the wilderness, 40 years trying to lead the people of God from slavery in Egypt to the fulfilment of God's promises for them in the promised land and essentially being of no fixed address in that time. I mean, if we in Brisbane feel the threat of natural disaster to our properties and what that might do to our sense of security financially and emotionally, um, in the ancient world, you could probably not turn that up a notch. Land and home was everything. The whole nature of God's promise to those slaves in Egypt was, I will give you a home, which will be your home for all generations, a place where you can really flourish and really live for all generations. And Moses, for the 40 most significant years of his life, does not inherit that. Every form that he has to fill out (laughs) during that 40 years of his life says no fixed address, right? That's a big deal. That's a big deal in our world, but it's a bigger deal in his world. And yet he can say, where I really live, (laughs) where I really live, even though I am the inheritor of a promise to have an eternal patch of land where my my uh, ancestors who come from me can live on and on. Where I really live is in God. I might, in this world fill my forms in and say NFA, no fixed address. But where I really live is in God. And I wonder if you have encountered that in the life of someone. Someone who has that God touch. Someone who, you know, you recognise has a certain relationship with God that is worth kind of going after. You know it when you see it. Uh, uh, Pastor Graham will hate uh, me telling this story, but you wouldn't know it from uh, maybe your experience of Pastor Graham, but Pastor Graham actually likes cars. Um, so when I first uh, met Pastor Gra- Graham and he was my teacher, he w- that's why I'm bad at maths, because he was my maths teacher. <laughs> uh, he had one of those sort of first-generation Toyota Celicas. There weren't even that many of them around back then. You might remember youth Pastor Graham and his XR6. Um, I mean, Pastor Graham's passionate about a lot of things, but you might not know that he really likes cars. And uh, anyway, after Graham and Christy uh, and and Jonah moved to Geelong, I don't think I got to see them down there for a a few years. And uh, after a few years, I, I... I managed to visit them and I knew that Graham was pastoring one of the bigger churches <laughs> in, in the country and I knew that, you know, he was going places with it, it was going well um, and it, it was a well, you know, it's a well-resourced church, they had a lot of money in the bank, I can't remember if it was that Graham picked me up from the airport but anyway, I remember first seeing the car that this very successful pastor was driving and it was a Ford laser and it was an absolute dump. It was a bomb. (laughs) Your Ford laser made his Ford laser look... uh, I mean, it's not 
it's not about the car. I mean, <laughs> it's not about the car, Joy. It's not about the car. Because uh, part of me was thinking, you know, this kind of pastor, I'm going to be interested to see what kind of ride Pastor Graham picks me up in now that he's at this season of his life. And here comes this, it was like a bad sky blue from memory, was it? It was a light red. There you go. Uh, the paint was peeling. It obviously had two paint jobs. Um, and on the one hand, I, maybe I was surprised, but on the other hand, it was like, of course, this makes sense, because <laughs> there's a sense in which Graham, as a, as a follower of God, like many of us in this place, uh, we're NFA, right? We're investing into, the, into different things. <laughs> and, um, you know, it really isn't about the car, because we can have a great car, but you'll encounter someone who dwells in God, and you'll see that they've got different priorities somehow. You know what I'm talking about. Actually, someone walked in this morning who was as good an example, Amrat. Um, Do you know Amrat turned 70? And, you know, I can can talk about Amrat as a great example. (coughs) Part of the reason he's a great example is because many of you don't know him. And he's a man who, my understanding, I've got no reason to think he wasn't very good at his job. <laughs> um, and he, he's a, he was a, an engineer. And, and he is someone who just blows in and helps the church all the time. I know what a generous person he's been. But he's just so understated with all of it. Uh, an example of it that happened recently, a slight diversion, but uh, when Wayne was sick with COVID, Amrat came in as he would, you just you expect it with Amrat, and he said, um, you know, anything I can do while Wayne's away, just call me. When you'd call Wayne, call me. One day he came in, and we've had some slight uh, issues with one of the air conditioners that, that feeds this room, and he's been tinkering with it for a long time, trying to get it to work. And I said, hi, Amrat. He told me, I'm going up to work on this air conditioner. Anyway, he came back. He said, actually, c- come with me. You can help <laughs> You can help me. I said, sure, I don't know how I can help you with an air conditioner, but, but here we go. And we went up into the crawl space, and my understanding is there's a problem with the compressor. And um, I'm going to say that Amrat pointed to two condensers. He's the only one who will know whether there's a condenser in a compressor, but two. And he said, crawl down here, and it's kind of an intimate space for two full-grown men to be. And he, he said, put your hand on that let's call it a condenser, one hand on that condenser and one hand on that condenser. And I said, sure. So I'm down there touching these two things, thinking, what do you want me to tell you? You're, you're the air conditioning, <laughs> air conditioning expert, Amrat. And he's looking at me and I've got my hands on the two things. I said, what am I feeling for here uh, Amrat, as someone who knows absolutely nothing about air conditioners, you're the air conditioning guy. And he said, oh, you're praying for it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he prayed a much better prayer for the air conditioner than I did. So, um, but you know, you, you know, people, you know people who, who dwell in the Most High, don't you? They just, there's something about their life. Their, their priorities are slightly different. And um, Moses is, is speaking to that 
when he says, I live in God. I might have been wandering in the desert of no fixed address, but I dwell in God. There's lots of stories of testing in Scripture, whether it's the testing of Jesus, which we'll talk about in a minute, whether it's the testing of Abraham, right? Where, where I mean, in the one instance where, where God says, take your son, <laughs> you're going on a, on a mission, you're going to sacrifice your son, it would seem. There's the testing of Israel, those 40 years in the wilderness, you know, when we read the story of the testing of Abraham, it's not the testing of God, <laughs> is it? I mean, we can put ourselves in Abraham's position and we can go, God, what kind of God are you right now? Am I really going to have to sacrifice my son? At the same time, we know the whole story and we, and we know, of course, <laughs> of course God would never ask that of Isaac. What's going on in that season, in that moment of testing, is a testing of Abraham, right? The 40 years that the Hebrews wandered in the wilderness, and I love that Pastor Joy always pulls us up on this because I 100% agree. You know, sometimes we go through seasons of testing and they look like trouble in our lives. To say that God can work through a situation like that is quite something different to say that that situation comes from God. <laughs> so that's the little insertion that I'm, I know Pastor Joy would, <laughs> would make, even if uh, she's not going to do it this morning because I'm doing it for her. But, you know, th- th- there can be, for some Christians... This idea that the bad things come from God, (laughs) and that's not what we're saying. But we can have even the worst circumstance be used for God's glory. And what was going on for the people of Israel in the wilderness was not that it was a test of whether God was going to be faithful to his promise to take them into a homeland. It was a test of whether they were going to journey with him, even in that uncertainty. It's sometimes remarked upon that, you know, Christian marriage is one of the clearest pictures of the kind of relationship that God has with his people. And, you know, if you think about the Christian marriage vows, they speak to... This fact that really you're stepping into the unknown, aren't you? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I went to a a wedding not so long ago and, you know, I'm not having a go at at the the vows that the couple had written their own vows. But they were a little different from the for richer, for poorer. They were more along the lines of, you know, they were funny and romantic. I promise always to, you know, to, to make you a coffee every morning and I promise to do that and, you know, like I promise to always tell you you're beautiful and, and that kind of thing. And, that, you know, it's nice to have coffee made for you in the morning. It's nice to tell your husband that he's beautiful. Um, but it's quite a different thing to saying 
actually, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make coffee for you in the morning. <laughs> what if something, you know, what, what if life changes in such a way? What if a missile comes through our apartment? What if I suffer from a degenerative disease and I can't get out of bed or out of my wheelchair? I, I can't actually necessarily promise to make you coffee every morning. But I can promise <laughs> to walk into the uncertainty of life with you and that you can trust my heart towards you and I can trust your heart towards me. And so one of the things that it's been remarked upon is going on in that 40 years in the wilderness is God's faithfulness to Israel was actually never in question. He fulfills his promises. But he was saying, do you want to be in a relationship of love with me where we can trust one another's heart to walk out into a future that's unknown and continue to dwell one with the other. You will continue to be someone who lives in me as I have promised to always live in and with you. So God's not tested. If we think about a season, say one of the things that that people often do during this season of 40 days is they they give something up, right? They, They give up meat. They give up coffee. It's a testing of our hearts. <laughs> it's a testing of, you know, are my human appetites stronger than my love for God? <laughs> one of the tricky things, and I, I'm bringing this to an end, one of the tricky things about this, and I think this is one of the reasons why we have an issue with Lent, because maybe we misunderstand this, is that it's not about passing that test. Because <laughs> whoever who's tried to give up something for 40 days, I wonder if you've actually succeeded in it. I think the story for most people would be, I slipped, <laughs> I slipped a couple of times. Because we do. And it's actually in the slipping <laughs> that we realise that we're human, <laughs> that we're imperfect, uh, and that he is so much better to us than we can be to him. This is a painting by uh, a Russian 19th century artist, Ivan Kramskoy, of Christ's testing in the wilderness. And um, if you know this story, and you can find it in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, of Jesus before he enters his ministry, spending 40 days of testing or temptation trial in the desert. You'll know that um, he was tempted by Satan. And that connection that I was speaking to between this psalm And that story is that Satan tempts him on this ground. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off (laughs) the temple. For it says in scripture that he commands his angels concerning you and they will lift you up. And of course Jesus says to him, 
don't test the Lord your God. God is faithful. The test is a test that we go through. We're going to take communion in a minute. I love this little section of the psalm because it points to something I'm really passionate about and that's reading the Bible well. And we talk a lot about reading the Bible in context here at Cornerstone. Well, here's an example of Satan not reading the Bible in context. Because if you think about Satan quoting Psalm 91 to Jesus, throw yourself off (laughs) the temple and... God will send angels to save you. The very next verse says, you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. I'm going to get the band up to lead us in some worship to close. But if you're familiar with this image of the serpent being trampled, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where humanity fails to live up to the deal that God has made with them and they become alienated from God. But God promises that one day the seed of the woman Eve will trample and destroy the serpent. And what we're doing for the next 40-something days is we're preparing our hearts and our lives and our minds to enter in to the mystery of how the serpent came to be crushed. See, Jesus, in those 40 days in the wilderness, he was stepping in to the story of history to pick up where we so often fail. If you read the story of Israel through the Old Testament, you know they didn't live up to the, to the bargain. <laughs> you know they were tested, not just in the wilderness, but in the promised land and they failed time and time again to trust God. They failed to live up to his calling on their life. They failed to be the ministers to the world that he intended them to be. Jesus takes the baton there and he says, I'm going to be the faithful Israel. I'm going to be the faithful son And if you read the story, you know that he conquered that temptation, that he passed that test. And um, in doing that, He invites us into the victory that he has.
you can pick up the, the cup and the bread. I just wanted to read a very brief passage from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And yeah, you can, you can rip the top off so that you're ready to eat and drink in a moment when I direct us. I'll give you a moment to do that. My Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So that's a way of Paul saying to a Jew, Jewish audience, when you were dead because you couldn't pass the test, when you were dead in your sin because you can't actually live up to the relationship that God invites you into, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins and having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. You know, ultimately, it doesn't matter if... Um, you fast for 40 days or not, <laughs> whether you have the, the willpower to give TV up for 40 days or to give it up for 38 days and fall, stumble two days when married at first sight's on. <laughs> Jesus sort of says, I know, I, I know you won't have victory in your own flesh. I know you're broken but I became broken so that you could inherit my righteousness. And so we walk into God's presence. We dwell in him in the assurance that it's not by anything that we've done, but it's by what Jesus did for us. Let's eat and drink and thank <laughs> Jesus for that.